Well, greetings, and uh, thank you for joining us here at the Republic Broadcasting Network. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, your host for the next one hour, and you are listening to Datum Line. Today's date, August 25, 2013. And in our previous Datum Line broadcast entitled Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 21, we introduced our fourth and last commentator on the legal tender debates of 1861 and the pertinent events which followed immediately thereafter, as related by James Blaine, who served as a member of Congress from the state of Maine between 1863 and 1881. Now, if you're just tuning in for the first time expecting to hear the latest cutting-edge analysis concerning America's present economic situation, you may be wondering already why we're, we're currently focused on events that transpired over 150 years ago. To folks under 40 years of age, this might sound like ancient history, totally irrelevant to the world in which we live. If, perchance, this is your view of history, then please accept my condolences for the suffering you endured while incarcerated as an inmate of the public school system. So many pertinent pieces of the puzzle were omitted from the curriculum that whatever truth might have been eagerly learned from the bitter lessons of history were lost on a student population reduced to boredom for want of historical relevance. This is not so much the fault of our individual teachers who were also taught the same redacted history without an understanding of the cause-and-effect relationships that naturally attend political and economic events. As Professor Stuart Crane used to say, It took a long time to make us this dumb. It's no accident. This process of dumbing down the general population began shortly after World War I as part of a program organized by tax-exempt foundations like the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. By rewriting and redacting history, which has a way of repeating itself, a new breed of historians has left us without an accurate compass by which to navigate the seemingly uncharted political and economic terrain that lies ahead of us. As a result, the only solution on the predetermined agenda is to follow the politically approved experts into a global dictatorship of the corporate banking elite in the false paradigm of Republican versus Democrat Hegelian dialectics. So far down the road to national destruction have we come that the slaughterhouse is now in full view to those with eyes to see. And even those who not long ago believed in the socialist agenda are starting to realize that all is not well with the official story they were taught from day one in elementary school. How we came to this miserable impasse is for the redacted bits of history to reveal. And to those ends, we have been engaged in these datum line broadcasts. But with an overwhelming amount of convoluted history behind us already, and growing rapidly with each passing day, how can we narrow our focus to where a reasonable level of time and energy expended will be paid back in the way of understanding how the system works and how to possibly escape many of its harrowing consequences? To do this, as the saying goes, you need to follow the money and to follow it far enough to discover that there isn't any. Nor has any money circulated in the United States since 1965. Where it is, however, 
only central bankers who sit atop the pyramid of political power, know for sure, since it was they who stole it in the credit for money swap between 1914 and 1965. Students of political events tend to focus on the shenanigans of Bill Clinton, George Bush, and Barack Obama. But the occupants of the White House are mere figureheads of a system directed from behind the scenes with a level of anonymity commensurate with the tremendous power emanating from their hidden thrones, which include the Federal Reserve, Central Banks of Europe, the World Bank, and the International Monetary Fund. You remember the golden rule, don't you? He who has the gold makes the rules. But the bankers don't lawfully own the gold. And you understand this, of course, but they certainly have more of it than we do. Thus, in my opinion, we need to understand banking from a biblical perspective. While this economic series has not been devoted exclusively to United States notes, which were first issued by the Lincoln administration in direct violation of the Constitution, we've nevertheless spent a considerable amount of time covering what Mr. Blaine identified as, quote, the most momentous financial step ever taken by Congress. This, he said, in reference to the prevailing belief expressed by the congressional majority that, quote, the one imperative duty was that the government should take control of the currency, issue its own paper as a circulating medium, and make it equal and alike to all by declaring it to be a legal tender in the payment of debts, end quote. Notice, that the majority opinion in Congress was that the government should take control of the currency, meaning that up to the year 1861, the federal government did not control the currency. This, despite the fact that it was 74 years after the Constitution was written, although populists today believe that it was not until 1861 that Congress finally did their constitutional duty by printing bills of credit called legal tender U.S. notes in violation of the Constitution. Unlike many of today's Federal Reserve critics, however, Congressman James Blaine and others of his day did not understand currency to be a synonym for lawful money. Currency at that time meant printed pieces of paper in the form of banknotes issued by state chartered banks, while lawful money was coined pieces of metal, gold and silver, produced by the United States Treasury. Currency was, therefore, the province of state chartered banks and not of the federal government, which was prohibited from issuing bills of credit, but was now about to enter that field under an assumed authority nowhere found in the Constitution. The justification cited was wartime necessity. It was acknowledged in Congress that banknote currency brought its own set of problems to the economy, as manifest in several bank panics that occurred prior to the Civil War. But this didn't dampen the notion that currency issued by Congress in violation of the Constitution was the only viable solution. In the words of Mr. Blaine, it would, quote, issue its own paper as a circulating medium, end quote. But this is where the comparison to state-chartered banknotes ended, since Congress believed they possessed a power that was equal to that of God. They could make law. It said so in the Constitution, which they were about to violate by making an unlawful act called theft legal, which 
is not quite synonymous with lawful, but close enough for government work. By giving to their paper, the official impress of legal tender, a feature denied to banknotes of that era, Congress would compel the American public to accept a $10 rag as if it had all the substantive attributes of a $10 gold coin or nearly one-half troy ounce of pure gold. When this kind of tyranny was first imposed in colonial America on the state level prior to the Constitution, the people referred to it as a forcing act. Now, it may seem hard to believe for some of our listeners, but once upon a time, we in America were free to refuse paper currency, or we could take it at a discount if we were the least bit suspicious about the issuing bank's integrity. But our freedom to discriminate against paper currency was not conducive to the level of power sought by the godmen. So our freedom to question our government or central bank's credibility was made a crime punishable by fine or imprisonment, as set forth in various legal tender acts imposed on us since colonial times, but lifted by the Constitution of 1787, a fact which almost everyone seems willing to ignore. There's our music. You're listening to Datum Line, and I'm Bruce G. McCarthy. Greetings and welcome back to this segment of Datum Line. Our message today is entitled Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 22. You know, it's bad enough that a legal tender act could force a free people to accept paper currency that they might otherwise refuse. But there was an insidious aspect to legal tender that compelled its acceptance even more than the possibility of being legally punished for refusing it. This insidious phenomenon was the total disappearance of lawful money from circulation. And what was it about a mere legal tender act that could have such an impact upon a nation's economy? Well, the answer to that is that no one would be willing to spend a gold or silver coin any longer when a mere rag that cost them far less to obtain, but carried the same dollar denomination, would legally get the goods and services they needed. Whatever money had not left the United States in exchange for imported goods, or had not yet been sequestered by the first and foremost hoarders, those are called the bankers, by the way, the general public, who are always the last ones to figure out the new game, began finally to stash their gold and silver under the floorboards to await the day when specie would again command the respect to which it was entitled in a free economic system under the Constitution, an economy we no longer have. What the threat of fines and imprisonment did not accomplish, therefore, the total absence of lawful money with which to buy the essentials of life did. It brought our ancestors to their knees in submission to political masters on the Potomac who, to this day, 
answer to even more powerful economic masters of the banking cartel. Well, well, this is somewhat of an introduction. Let's turn now to 20 Years of Congress, Volume 1, published in 1884 by James G. Blaine, who served in Congress from the state of Maine. Turning to page 404, quote, In his report of December 9, 1861, the Secretary of the Treasury, now that would be Salmon P. Chase, uh, Salmon Portland Chase, by the way, informed Congress that, in his words, the safest, surest, and most beneficial plan would be to engage the banking institutions of the three chief commercial cities of the seaboard, meaning Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, to advance the amounts needed for disbursement in the form of loans for three years of 730 bonds. And now a 730 bond was a 7.30% paying interest or interest-paying bond, to be reimbursed from the proceeds of similar bonds subscribed for by the people through the agencies of the national loan. Now, let's break this down. It appears that the public had already purchased bonds from federal loan agencies. And how did they purchase them? With gold and silver as was stated by one of our other commentators who quoted a Treasury official to that effect. And why was the public paying gold and silver? Well, because the federal government was not going to sell a bond back in those days to the general public in exchange for bank paper. No, they, were, they wanted lawful money because that's all the federal government was uh, allowed to operate with in terms of money. But why was a select inner circle of seaboard city bankers, and I'll prove to you in a moment that the seaboard we're talking about, the seaboard cities were Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. But why was a select inner circle of seaboard city bankers more desirable for Uncle Sam to work with than the citizens whose gold and silver would be pledged to acquire the bonds? Bankers don't operate with their own gold and silver. They operate with yours. <laughs> well... Back in the old days, when you had it and you deposited it, banks operated with your money, not with theirs. Okay, well, the answers to that are manifold. First, there were far fewer banks to deal with than there were citizens. So from the standpoint of simplification, there would be less paperwork and confusion, right? Second, those bankers held a high concentration of the public's gold and silver in those vaults even though they now refuse to pay it out to the owners thereof when lawfully demanded. You remember that uh, banks had suspended specie payment just prior to all of this. Third, Uncle Sam, on the other hand, was now standing at the loan window as the biggest, most desperate, economically profitable, and politically useful customer the bankers had seen since the War of 1812. And no self-respecting, upward-mobile loan shark was about to let this kind of deal slip through his fingers. As a result, this unnatural concentration of wealth, gold and silver, was unlawfully leveraged into tremendous political clout by astute financiers who used that power against their own customers. If those customers had not surrendered to the unlawful temptation, 
of receiving interest on deposits. They might have exercised that political power to far more righteous purposes. Let's put this piece of European-American economic history into biblical perspective for those who appreciate a moral lesson on Sunday morning. Would it seem reasonable to you that God's prohibition against a lender taking usury or interest on a loan of money, as expressed in Exodus 22:25, might also prohibit a depositor from receiving interest from such a lender on what he unlawfully leverages into artificial money called bank credit. You've noticed, perhaps, how some Christians who partner with a banker can take a dim view of having to pay interest on a loan while remaining silent about interest received on a bank deposit. This kind of hypocrisy has encouraged theologians to bend the economic rules of Scripture in a direction that favors the sinners who may be willing to tithe or to tithe more if the sermons don't offend them. Surely God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory, they might exclaim, citing Philippians chapter 4. And by what better means than our friendly banker in the front row, who recently accepted Christ during an altar call, don't you know, and whose bank financed our new temple of worship? Well, that's kind of the rationale that's going on in the church world this day as an age, I think. Now, Mr. Blaine goes on. He says that representatives of the banks of New York, Boston, and Philadelphia, those are the three seaboard cities he was referring to, representatives of the banks of New York, Boston, and Philadelphia united to give moneyed support to the government. So says Congressman Blaine on page 405. Now, see how easy it is to form an alliance between Washington and a few high-powered loan sharks. He says that the secretary opened books of subscription throughout the country. The banks, he said, subscribed promptly for $50 million. End quote. So we're to believe that they did this out of pure, unadulterated patriotism, right? And they only had to pay $5 million at once in coin for those $50 million in bonds. That's what he says. Now, what kind of an arrangement do you suppose you would have to make before Uncle Sam would let you buy $50 million of interest-paying bonds for only $5 million, only 10% down? Well, those bankers agreed, says Blaine, quote, to pay the balance, also in coin, as needed by the government, end quote. But you remember that the banks had already suspended specie payments. Oh, here's our music. Gosh, I was getting carried away with myself here. Oh, well, please join me on the other side of this break. You're listening to Datum Line, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 22, and I'm Bruce G. McCarthy. this segment of Datum Line, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 22. On the other side of the break, I'd mentioned that the banks back in 1861, banks of Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, specific banks in those three cities, 
had promptly subscribed for $50 million in treasury bonds, and they paid $5 million for those $50 million in bonds. But they did that at once, and in coin. Of course, America was going to be going through a transition. This is a very important period of time, this Civil War period, because America is transitioning from uh, a government that operates on lawful money to a government that operates on absolutely no money. That's the government we have today. Well, that transition period was beginning back in the uh, Lincoln administration. Uh, but you remember back in those days that the banks had already suspended specie payment to everyone else other than the federal government. And a frightened public was not about to let their private stash of gold and silver go to waste in the marketplace, where Congress said it was worth no more than irredeemable United States notes, which were now flooding the market they being of the same dollar equivalent. It was therefore only a matter of time before Congress would no longer need specie to acquire domestically produced goods and services. You understand that now? That's the whole idea of credit instruments, is to get what you produce now and pay you later. Uh, the best credit instruments, of course, are the dishonored ones, as far as the bankers and the government are concerned, and those are the ones that get what you produce now and will pay you never. It takes a while before you can transition a population from getting paid up front to never getting paid ever. Uh, it takes a while. Uh, like Professor Stuart Crane said, it took a long time to make us this dumb. A long time. And the public school system has been useful to those ends. Now, you remember that it was Congressman Blaine who said that uh, government uh, was going to be issuing bonds and that the banks had agreed to pay the balance of the $50 million. They only paid $5 million up front. But the balance was going to be paid also in coin, they said, as needed by the government. I think that's an important phrase there because, as I just said, it was going to be only a matter of time a matter of months, when Congress would no longer need specie to acquire what people produced here in the United States. But now from foreign sources, they still had to pay out in lawful money, gold and silver. If they could eliminate their dependence on foreign goods, however, Congress would be home free. They could get everything they needed from their newly created white slaves in the Union North without having to pay so much as one red cent in relatively cheap copper. As an aside, populists seem to think, at least that's what I deduce, that a terrible injustice was somehow imposed upon America and Congress in particular by unsympathetic foreigners who had the gall somehow to demand payment in money. But by what legal theory could Congress have compelled citizens of another country to accept worthless greenbacks in exchange for their wealth. The British Parliament certainly couldn't force Americans to accept IOUs issued by the Bank of England, could it? Well, we're still at page 405. Quote, for this loan, this is a $50 million loan for which they gave $5 million in coin, you remember. For this loan, the banks received 730 notes. Those are 7.30% interest-paying notes, and the proceeds of the popular loan, popular meaning from the public, were transferred to them, the bankers, end quote. So the bankers evidently bought up the public loan 
and we're now entitled to collect the rent on that public loan. This reminds me of a hostile corporate takeover that I heard about, oh golly, it must have been 20 or more years ago, when I was living on the Arkansas border. It seems that a large poultry producer, name withheld to protect the guilty, it seems that a large poultry producer wanted to acquire a smaller one. So they inquired of the bank that held the debt on that small or smaller poultry business. They then bought that note and dangled it in front of that smaller company with a demand for prompt payment. Unable to pay the debt on short notice, the small company was quietly merged into the bigger one. Now, it looks like the bankers did somewhat the same thing with the federal debt that was publicly held by the citizens and bought up by the bankers at 10% down, no less. Now, according to Blaine, quote, the sales of the public amounted to little more than one-half that sum, so that would be a little over $25 million. But the banks, when called upon, made a second advance of $50 million, end quote. We are, however, at least I am, left to speculate as to when they were called upon to make that next advance, in what form the $50 million advance would be paid, and whether the total was actually $55 million, that would be $5 million plus the $50 million, you see, for $50 million of bonds, or was it another bond issue among several bond issues? Mr. Blaine does not explain. On page 407, he says, the discouragement in financial circles, oh golly, we wouldn't want the financiers to be discouraged, would we? The discouragement in financial circles produced by the Treasury report of Mr. Chase, according to Congressman Blaine, hastened, he said, if it did not cause the suspension of specie payment by the banks of New York City. Many country banks, he said, had ceased to pay specie sometime before. Indeed, many had been only on a nominal basis of coin since the financial crisis of 1857. End quote. He doesn't explain what is meant by a nominal specie-paying bank. Nominal meaning in name only. But, but perhaps what it means is, uh, yes, we pay in specie since you've asked, but no, you can't have any for that note that you want us to redeem. <laughs> Maybe that's what it means. I think it does. Bankers seem to get all the breaks, you know, when it comes to defining what they do. The Department of Education should be next in line for providing their victims with a nominal education. You'll notice that, according to Mr. Blaine, that some banks had been on a pretend basis since 1857. That was four years earlier. Now, that must have had a chilling effect on bank customers who would suddenly decide that they wanted their money back and would be kicking themselves for putting it into the bank. So it goes with 2020 hindsight that always seems better than 2020 foresight. Turning to page 408, 20 Years of Congress, Volume 1, James Blaine, published 1884. He says, quote, the discovery of gold in California. You remember the gold rush of 1849, the 49ers. The discovery of gold in California resulted, he said, in an enormous product, surpassing anything known in the history of mining, end quote. 
That's incredible. So it appears that we were receiving the blessings of God and that he was somehow pouring out blessings upon us. But he went on to say, quote, But we had been encouraging the importation of goods from Europe, which, said Mr. Blaine, were confessedly somewhat cheaper than our own fabrics and in amount largely in excess of our export of cotton and cereals, end quote. Today, our current policy now encourages the importation of goods from China, India, and beyond, robbing us of the independence we enjoyed as the principal world power during the first half of the 20th century. During the 10-year period prior to the Civil War, according to Blaine, quote, we were constantly paying the difference in coin with our exports of specie and bullion, exceeding our imports of specie by the enormous aggregate of $450 million, which averaged nearly $4 million a month. Okay, so in foreign trade, the United States was paying out gold and silver to purchase foreign goods. Foreign countries were purchasing our goods and also paying us in gold and silver. However, we were losing approximately $4 million a month for 10 years, on average, in our gold and silver, in this unequal balance of trade. This was at a time when federal expenditures were averaging somewhere around $5 million a month as a point of reference for your comparison. In his autobiography entitled Reminiscences, published in 1964, General Douglas MacArthur reflected upon America's victory in World War II as being attributed, at least in part, to her independence from foreign sources of manufactured goods. It would naturally follow that war with a foreign enemy would be... Oh my golly, here's another break. Oh. Well, you're listening to Datum Line. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy. This is Economic Myth, Science of Deceit, Part 22. Repeating economic history, the history that was lived 
according to Blaine, from 1850 to 1860 at least, by encouraging dependence upon foreign manufactured goods and today foreign food. (laughs) Food? Yeah, how about Alaska wild-caught salmon, for example, product of China? Uh, Now, this was a point of contention expressed by Congressman Blaine in his two-volume series published in 1884. Now, on page 409, the congressman introduces another element about which he reveals a deep concern. Quote, In Europe, the general opinion, founded in many influential quarters, was that the Union would be dissolved, that with the success of the South, there would be still further divisions between the East and the West. We had but recently and narrowly escaped war with England on account of the Trent Affair, he says. Now, the Trent Affair involved the forcible removal, that was in November of 1861, of two Confederate commissioners who were en route to London. That was in the personage of uh, James Mason and John Slidell. And they were sailing aboard the British mail packet called the Trent. And it was stopped in the Bahama Channel by a U.S. naval warship commanded by Captain Charles Wilkes, who became an instant hero in the Union North until the British sent a sharp rebuke of the incident, which was interpreted in Congress as a genuine threat of war. Mr. Blaine goes on to explain the European political temperament by adding these remarks, quote, In the crafty and adventurous Emperor of France, now he's referring to Emperor Napoleon III, We had a secret enemy who saw in our downfall, that would occur during the war between the states, the possible extension of his power and the strengthening of his throne, end quote. So it was evident that our civil war left us wide open to possible outside invasion by England, a country we narrowly defeated in the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, and now France. European hostility toward our continued union of North and South was further expressed in the realm of banking and finance, the subject under present review, introducing a familiar name to many of our listeners. And I believe it was this hostility in the economic realm that could precipitate hostility in the political realm by the French and the English. Because at the top of the political pyramid sits the central bankers. Here's what Mr. Blaine has to say, still on page 409. Quote, Confederate bonds were more popular in England than the bonds of the United States. The world's treasures were closed against us. The bankers of Europe, with the Rothschilds in the lead, would not touch our securities. End quote. There's a familiar name, right? Turning now to page 410, he says, quote, Their united clientage included the investors of Great Britain and the continent, and a popular loan could not be effected without their aid and cooperation. We were engaged, therefore, in a threefold contest, a military one with the Confederacy, a diplomatic and moral one with the governments of England and France, and a financial one with the money power of Europe, end quote. Now, as to financial assistance from within the United States, Mr. Blaine seemed to think it was unlikely since, he says, quote, the banks of the country, many of them in reckless speculative hands, 
were freed by the suspension of specie payment from their just responsibilities and might flood the country with worthless paper, which would entail great distress upon the people, end quote. He seemed to have recognized the spurious nature of banknotes, or at least the precarious foundation upon which they were issued, as did many people of that era. However, he didn't speak any more highly of Uncle Sam's outpouring of IOUs. He said, quote, The Treasury notes not being paid in coin on demand, as promised on their face. Now, these were the first greenbacks that were called demand notes, which were not made legal tender, by the way. These notes became discredited to such a degree that the banks of the leading commercial cities would receive them only as a special deposit and not as money of account, end quote. Here, we have the pot calling the kettle black. The bankers looking askance at treasury notes when, as a matter of routine, they, the banks, issued unbacked notes which professed to be redeemable. I can almost hear the Apostle Paul chiding his former associates, the, the Pharisees, for a similar kind of hypocrisy, judging others for unrighteous deeds when their own behavior was even more atrocious. Mr. Blaine is in error, however, when trying to suggest that demand notes of the Treasury should be construed as money of account, a phrase that was reserved for gold and silver coin of the United States only, and not mere promises to pay it. Page 411, we're going full circle now. Because our economic system was in such disarray, thanks to the depredations of commercial banking, that's my input, quote, the first thing to be secured was a currency, he said. Now, that's not a synonym for money. That, he says, was demanded to pay the debt of honor to the soldiers. Honor? Instruments of confiscation would be issued to preserve honor? That's incredible. And he says to remove the stagnation in business. Yeah, credit can do that, can't it? To put the people in heart and hope, end quote. Well, they might have raised heart and hope in a system of uniform justice by encouraging the prosecution of bankers for fraud and theft, demanding the return of the people's gold and silver along with a biblical restitution pursuant to Exodus chapter 22. So since this is Sunday, a church day for most people, Let's turn to the Bible at Exodus chapter 22 for just a moment. Exodus 22 verse 7 says, If a man shall deliver unto his neighbor money or stuff. Yeah, that's King James language, right? Stuff. Hey, you can't understand King James. It's pretty easy to understand, right? To keep, if you deliver it unto your neighbor to keep, and it be stolen out of the man's house. Well, how about if it's stolen out of a bank vault? If the thief be found, let him pay double. If the thief, verse 8, be not found, then the master of the house, he be called the bank manager, shall be brought unto the judges to see whether he has put his hand unto his neighbor's goods, or gold and silver coins. Verse 9 says, in part, that the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whom the judges shall condemn, he shall pay double unto his neighbor. I believe that life in America would have been different if, before entering upon the pursuit of banking, a lender was mindful that restitution would have to be paid to any victim defrauded of his money, and that his inability to repay what he owed, he being the bank manager, if he couldn't, if he couldn't pay it back, it would result in forced servitude to the victim until the debt was fully paid, pursuant to Exodus 22 and verse 3. 
But no. State-chartered banks were authorized to issue notes against a typical 25% gold reserve, a perk no banker ever offered to me when I used to have a checking account. Do you think a bank should authorize your neighbor to write a $100 check against $25 balances? And would you accept such a check as a payment for goods and services? That, after all, would be a 25% reserve, although not established in lawful money any longer. No, I think if we had had a biblical approach to our economic system, we wouldn't be in the mess that we are in today. Well, this is our last music. The fat lady's supposed to sing, I guess. We're going to close out for another segment of Data Mind. Please join us in our next broadcast. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy. Have a good day, and God bless you. Do you begin to smell some funky little things going on? Let me share this story with you. It's not so much a story, it's something I wrote years ago. Read your history, people. Stock markets collapse on Friday. Bank seizures, closures, holidays take place after business hours on Friday. Do currencies or governments also collapse on Friday? <laughs> Tomorrow's Friday. Will the end come on this Friday, or will the inevitable collapse hold off for a while? The next round of the worst financial crisis in a hundred years is coming, people, and the government is out to make you and I pay for it. And will your savings survive a global banking wipeout? What happens when the U.S. sees hyperinflation? What if taxes soar not only for the rich? Can you survive if the stock market tanks? Look, between a stock market wipeout, waves of bank failures, soaring government spending that will lead to hyperinflation and the destruction of the dollar's value, isn't it time that you prepare for the uncertainty which lies ahead? Protect your money now or forever kiss it goodbye. My friends, I offer you over six decades experience of hard asset ownership and knowledge and I'm prepared to handle the smallest detail in the balanced protection of your portfolio. For as the future of uncertainty continues to blanket this nation of ours, I believe that I can offer you the privacy, safety, security, and possibly some profitability which you deserve. And so I invite you to visit SierraMondrePreciousMetals.com for further information regarding protecting your wealth. Or call me, Jeffrey Bennett, at 602-799-8214. Or by email at KettleMoraineLTD at Cox.net for private consultation. Once again, our phone number is 602-799-8214. It's almost Friday. Are you one of the millions of people who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs? For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. Have you ever wondered why CBD oil is a billion-dollar industry? It's because it works better than opioids and is actually healthy for you. 
However, CBD oil is stripped of all other helpful compounds found in the hemp plants. According to neuroscientists, the whole hemp plant, otherwise known as hemp paste, is even more effective than the chemically processed CBD oil. Are you ready to take back your health? You can try hemp paste by going to rbnhemppaste.com. That's rbnhemppaste.com. I'm so excited to have you as part of the Wild Pastures family, and we look forward to bringing you the pastures meats that you and your family will love. Now, we started Wild Pastures because so many of my clients would tell me they just couldn't find high-quality pasture-raised meats. And even when they did, it was so expensive that they couldn't afford to eat it regularly. Now, I'm not talking about the bottom-of-the-barrel healthy meats that have claims like natural or free-range or even cage-free, terms that were actually created by the industrial food industry to make us feel all warm and fuzzy about buying their low-quality products. I'm talking about truly nourishing pasture-raised meats, the kind that you'll never really find in a grocery store. Our farmers are doing things beyond organic. Our beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and raised on pastures free from chemicals and other pesticides. Our chickens are 100% pasture-raised, where they get their natural diet of grass and forage and insects. We will never settle for free range, which is actually one of the most deceptive terms in the chicken industry. In fact, less than 0.1% of the chicken consumed in the United States is truly pasture-raised in the way that ours is. And our pork is 100% pasture-raised as well. So if you care about where your food comes from, then you have definitely made it to the right place. As a Wild Pastures member, you'll be supporting the most highly principled farmers in America and getting the most nutrient-dense, nourishing, and sustainable meats in the world. I'm confident you'll love being part of our mission at Wild Pastures, and you will really love the delicious, nourishing meats that we're going to deliver straight to your door. Visit republicbroadcasting.org and click the Wild Pastures banner ad. Secure a shipment today. Beef, poultry, and pork. Raised the way nature intended. Tahibo Tea Club's original pure pouty arco super tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus does not grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti-infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system, and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit drinksupertea.com. The first word is drink, spelled D-R-I-N-K, then the word super, then the word tea. The complete website is drinksupertea.com. Or call us at 818-965-9113, Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-965-9113, drinksupertea.com. My name is John. I'm the founder of Blackout Coffee, and I started uh, Blackout because I really love coffee. I've always loved coffee, and after traveling so much to Europe, South America, and trying so many different coffees that were so good, and uh, every time I came back, uh, to the U.S., I was so disappointed with the coffee, so I figured that I had to do something about it. The biggest difference is really is on the beans and the roasting process, how we roast it, 
and how fresh it is. The fresher the roast, the better the quality. Here I have like all, all of the coffee. It's roasted within one to two days prior to being shipped. So it literally gets to consumer's house within three to five days after being roasted. If you like coffee, you have to try ours. It's fresh roasted. It's one of the best beans that we can get. And you will definitely see the difference. Visit blackoutcoffee.com and use the coupon code REPUB10. That's REPUB10. Corporate media dominates the American opinion. Finding independent voices that counter this avalanche is becoming increasingly difficult. With the endless corruption running rampant throughout our government, independent voices are needed more than ever to battle the offensive against our freedoms and liberties. As a listener of RBN, no one understands this concept better than you. Now it's up to you to do your part. The time has come for you to take action and begin broadcasting the truth to hundreds or thousands of people every month. Sound impossible? Quite the contrary. With pointed slogans from LibertyStickers.com, you can reach countless sleeping Americans unaware that they live in a real-life wonderland. LibertyStickers.com has a huge inventory of political bumper stickers and messages that reflect the truth about our government, our politicians, and the future of America. With so many in stock, there's one perfect for you. Visit us today at LibertyStickers.com. Again, that's LibertyStickers.com. Do your part. Your voice is important. Let it be heard. Hey there, are you going to wait till the cows come home to get your new Ease-Off Drop and Lift? What in the world is an Ease-Off Drop and Lift? Our Ease-Off is a new tool to increase production for your meat processing company that will get that whole hog or half a beef on or off your rail with our remote control. That sounds great, but can I afford it? Sure, and the Ease-Off installs fast. The effortless operation will reduce fatigue, speed up your line, and increase profits. Okay, I'm convinced. Where can I get my Ease-Off? Go to EaseOff.com. That's E-A-Z-E-O-F-F dot com. And hurry, because we're offering free shipping for a limited time. EaseOff.com. We make pigs fly. Cows, too. EaseOff, LLC, 417-932-6419. Homeowners, are you in foreclosure, expecting to be served with a foreclosure lawsuit, or suspect your lender has coerced you into an illegal mortgage transaction? A huge number of mortgages made in the last 10 years have legal issues and are possibly defective. State laws and the U.S. Supreme Court have upheld that defective mortgage documents are grounds for foreclosure defense and for counterclaims in favor of the homeowner. If your mortgage has been sold or assigned since closing the loan, it may be defective and you may be paying the wrong party and the lender may not have standing or the right to foreclose or collect payments under the law. If you would like to know if your mortgage is legal or not or know if you are paying the right party, we can help. Our initial consultations are free of charge. We are not attorneys. We are legal researchers and work closely with experienced lawyers who know how to help you find the evidence to help you keep your home. Call toll-free 1-855-2-KEEP-IT. That's 1-855-2-KEEP-IT today. Do you or someone you know suffer from chest pain, blood pressure, cholesterol, or irregular heartbeat? Are you looking for a more natural solution to overcome these health challenges? You hear the ads all the time. If this stuff's so good, why doesn't my doctor prescribe it? That's easy. Doctors are not trained in natural medicine. Extendivite Heart Tonic does want you to be as healthy as you can be. And it really works. 
Take Extendivite for six months and your doctor will say, I don't know what you're doing, but don't stop. It's working for you. Get the dependability of Extendivite. Just see how you feel in six months. A two-month supply of either capsules or liquid is only $69.95 plus shipping and handling. Call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822. Or visit heartdrop.com. Extend your life with Hello, hello, hello from beautiful Colorado. My name is Samuel Jung Kay, and I am currently the lead Shilaji hunter and master herbalist for Colorado Shilaji Company. In this video series, I will be discussing what we believe is the greatest of all adaptogenic superfoods and the single greatest natural healing remedy gifted to us by Mother Earth. I think you too will become as excited by this incredible substance called Shilaji as we were and are after our discovery of this amazing gift right here in beautiful, colorful Colorado. You may already know Shilaji by other names. Shilajit, Momio, Momi, Mami, Mineral Pitch, Asphaltum, and others. Shilaji literally translates to Destroyer of Weakness and Conqueror of Mountains. Shilaji has been in use for thousands of years and is considered as the highest valued cure-all of any earthly substance. Look for the gold mountain and medical symbol logo in banners on republicbroadcasting.org to watch the full video and see more information. Use code GORBN when ordering. That's G-O-R-B-N. The secret to aging like fine wine is in the vines. Syrah grape seeds and skins contain high levels of flavonoids and resveratrol. Fermentation breaks these organic compounds down into smaller molecules, penetrating these therapeutic ingredients deeper into the skin, delivering faster and more effective results. Our handmade fermented skincare products are formulated with all natural ingredients and do not contain any phthalates or parabens. Similar products can cost as much as $180. At Natural Earth Medicine, we source our ingredients from local Arizona vineyards and cold process our oils to ensure that our customers receive the highest quality product in its purest form. Learn more at our website and try our fermented skincare products today. Visit naturalearthmedicine.com. That's naturalearthmedicine.com. Kilad Atzman says the essence of Jewish power is the ability to prevent the discussion of Jewish power. Jewish power requires anybody in politics to understand it and know about it, but never talk about it. My awakening really sums up with the very best evidence, the facts and the truth about race, and the fact that race drives history, and the truth about the Jewish question. The younger you get, the greater the percentage of people who identify as alphabet soup, you know, LGBTQ, RS. This woman, she's like, oh yeah, I identify as a koala two years ago. And I'm like, what? A koala? What? Maybe if it was quickie koala, that might be cool, but otherwise, I don't know. How about an inward pass? Have you ever received an inward pass from any of your black friends? Biden invited a drag queen to come for the signing of the Respect for Marriage Act. It's a Respect for Anal Sex Act. So, you know, I mean, let's, let's just call it like it is. The Patrick and Jeremy Show, Tuesday at 9 Central and Wednesday at 1 Central. Consider this. Dead people see only what they want to see. And frankly, most of us are still dead. Let me give you the lessons of gold and five easy lessons. Number one, don't buy it because you need to make money. You buy gold because you need to protect the money you already have. Don't ever look at the price as a barrier. 
Look at it as an incentive. Number three, don't buy its paper pretenders. We talked about that a lot. Buy gold. Buy the real thing in the form of coins and bullion. Fourth, don't fall prey to glitzy television or Facebook ads. Do your due diligence instead. And that's what I try to provide you with and have for 26 and a half years on the air and 30 years in this profession. Fifth, don't allow naysayers to divert your interest. Allow yourself the right to protect your interests as you see fit. Jeff Bennett here. And one of the ways you can do that is to contact Kettle Moraine Limited. Contact me by calling or texting me at 602-799-8214. 602-799-8214. You can also email me at kettlemoraineltd at cox.net. Let me help you protect your wealth and your family today. Once again, call or text us at 602-799-8214 or visit our website, sierramadrepreciousmetals.com. Be glad to help you out. Be glad to answer your questions. That's what we're here for. No pressure. Just good, hard, common sense. The decision then becomes up to you.